right, today we are continuing our series, our Advent series entitled Waiting. And today we'll be in the book of Matthew, the first gospel, Matthew chapter 1. And uh, Abigail did a great job of reading our text already this morning from Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. We're going to be looking at even some of the genealogy this morning found in the first 17 verses. But this really is a, a season of waiting. We're waiting for Christmas gifts. We're f- waiting for family gatherings. We're waiting for that last day of work, maybe for the year. We're waiting on that Christmas party or that Christmas meal. We're waiting for that last Amazon package to arrive. This really is a season of waiting. Maybe you're waiting on something more significant than some of those things that may seem trivial. Uh, Maybe you're waiting on news from a doctor, or you're waiting on news from your lawyer. You're waiting on news uh, about a diagnosis, or to get a job, or to find a place to live. You are in a season of waiting, and it is something that is more significant. It may be that you're waiting for joyous reasons, and I'm sensitive to the fact that with a room this size, many of us are in a season of waiting for hard and difficult reasons. And when we're waiting like this, we can often ask ourselves the question, particularly in seasons of difficulty, how could anything good come from this? How could anything good come from this? This is hard. It's difficult. I don't want to be going through this. You can feel that that rattling inside of you. You feel that uneasiness. And you ask yourself the question, how could any good come from this? Whatever the reason for your season of waiting, God has a word for you today. We regularly try to do this and remind ourselves of this here at Mosaic is, is we have the scriptures and we hold them up. Everybody, if you have a copy of the scriptures, even if it's on your phone, just, just hold it up. And uh, I'm going to say this and then we'll say it together. These words matter. Everybody say this with me. These words matter. They matter. Particularly the passage that we are going to look at today helps us clearly to see that these Words matter. We're not going to read the text again, but we will come back to it frequently and read sections from this morning. The story of Joseph. You know, Matthew's gospel begins with a genealogy, with a list, and we'll dig into that in just a few moments, but it begins with the story of Joseph. Luke's gospel, where the Christmas account is also given to us, which is the passage that's most famously read on Christmas Eve services or maybe Christmas morning in your house, where we're trying to discern whether it's Quirinius or how to pronounce that name, right? You always have some family member who who messes that up and we give them a hard time, right? So this passage in Luke, Luke chapter 2, is a famous passage and it begins with the story of Mary. So Matthew's gospel tells the story of Joseph and How Joseph learns that Mary is pregnant with the Messiah. And often Joseph is a side character. He's like the forgotten character. 
He, he's the side character in the Christmas story, and he doesn't get a lot of airtime. He doesn't get a lot of play, so I figured this Advent season we talk about him. Because I think there's actually something in Joseph's waiting that God has a word for you and me. But Joseph is not a side character simply because his story lacks tension. His story is full of tension. But I want you to think for just a moment, if you were to pick a Christmas character from the Christmas story, who would you want to meet? Who is it for you? I think the most common answer when people are polled is Mary. I would have loved to have met Mary and to ask her some questions about what it was like to to carry the Son of God. Did, Did you have morning sickness? You know? Did, did, you, uh, did you have sleepless nights, or was it the most joyous pregnancy of all time? I mean, there's all kinds of questions that we would ask Mary. Uh, maybe you would want to meet Herod, the jealous king, and ask him what his problem is. What was your problem, bro? Uh, maybe it's the Magi, those mysterious visitors who followed the star. Uh, this past week in my job... Um, we did a, uh, a Christmas party on Zoom, and, and for the record, your pastor won the trivia contest. So I've got an Amazon gift card headed my way, and I can't wait, right? Because I asked a bunch of you on Facebook this week, what was your favorite book? So now I have something to spend my Amazon gift card on. And, uh, and so a bunch of people who are on our team, on my team in the Northeast region for the North American Mission Board, um, are from other places in the world. And so my boss uh, for the Northeast, a great dude named Steve, and uh, Steve decided to have each of our guys from different places around the world talk about their Christmas traditions. And all of uh, my fellow brothers in Christ that are from Latin America and, uh, and from uh, Spanish-speaking countries, was, it was interesting to hear them tell their perspective about Three Kings Day. And, uh, and let me just tell you, if you're a child, you would have loved to have heard my friend Romy, who is from the Philippines, talk about how long they celebrate Christmas. They celebrate Christmas from the beginning of September until the end of January. How, kids, are you hearing me? The beginning of September to the end of January. Wouldn't you love to sign up for that? He also told us that they celebrate Three Kings Day, and the celebration is around the idea that if you are a godparent, any of your godchildren, um, that they come to you and they ask you for money, and you're obligated to give them money. That means if you are a godparent, you're poor. If you're a godchild, you're rich right? So it's interesting because some of us would want to meet the magi. Some of us would want to meet the shepherds, those young. Really, they were not old people. In fact, if you study historically shepherds, many of them were even teenage girls. And what's interesting is they were so uh, looked down upon in society, they were not allowed to vote or uh, give testimony in court because They were considered gypsies who could not be trusted. And yet, they were at the Savior's birth. It's interesting. How about the innkeeper? He's not actually in the Bible. um, And uh, often we hear stories on Christmas Eve or sermons about the innkeeper. And he's not even in the Bible. 
Um, but maybe you'd want to meet him and be like, be like, I can't believe you turned them away. You give him a hard time. Or how about Simeon? We're going to be introduced to him next week and um, his story, or Anna, the prophetess, or maybe Mary. Matthew doesn't leave out Joseph, and I love this because I believe that we're going to see a couple amazing truths that we can dig into this morning that will help us in our season of waiting. So the question then is, who is this Joseph? Who is this character? If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We'll stop there for just a moment. We're introduced to this character, Joseph, who is the forgotten character of the Christmas story. The question is, who is he? Well, you look up in the text of the genealogy towards the end of verse 16 and 17, we find out that he is the son of Joseph, or sorry, the son of Jacob. He's the son of Jacob. His family hometown was Bethlehem in Judea, but he lived in Nazareth in Galilee. That means that during the time that we find out in Luke chapter 2 that they have to go be a part of the census, they have to travel 95 miles in the dead of winter while Mary is pregnant to give an account for their family in the census. We also know from the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph, as well as David, are of the line of David. So he has a royal lineage, and you would think that that would give him some place of honor, some place of significance, but the reality is is that Joseph is poor. He's poor. Uh, He was a carpenter by trade, which meant that he was likely a poor man, but we know for sure he was poor because when Jesus is born and they show up at the temple, you know that moment when Jesus kind of runs off at 12 years of age and is hanging out at the temple and he's giving lessons to the religious leaders and the Pharisees and the scribes? The text tells us that they offered a turtle dove as a sacrifice. And only poor people did that. It means they could not afford to buy a lamb or something significant to offer to God as a sacrifice. They offer a turtle dove, which means they were poor. The text also shows us that not only is Joseph of the line of David and he was a carpenter who was poor, but it also tells us that he is a religious man. And it's found in that phrase He was a just man. It seems simple. It seems as though it's a 
delineation of his character, but it's actually saying something much broader and so much, so much larger than what is just on the surface in our English language. It, it literally means that he was a religious and devout keeper of the law. In other words, he knew the law. He knew the fact that if Mary came up pregnant during their engagement, that it was against the law. It wasn't just an accident, it was against the law. It wasn't potentially something that was just going to be looked over and she's going to be like, oh, she's a teenage mom, maybe she'll end up on that show on MTV. No, this was significant. She could lose her life over this. And the text tells us that they were betrothed. Now, betrothal was an ancient Jewish marriage custom where the parents arranged the marriage often without the children's approval. And this was done for lots of different reasons, but uh, mainly because marriage often happened while those two individuals were in their teenage years. And it makes sense that it was just from a practical reason that it was arranged Because there were financial implications tied to it, but it also made sense because if you're a parent with a teenager, you know that their brain is not fully developed, right? And they probably don't have the ability mentally to choose the right life partner. I know I didn't. I got married when I was 20, and thankfully, even though I was not a part of an arranged marriage, both of our parents had met us and approved of it and encouraged it later on, maybe not right at the beginning. <laughs> but the betrothal period where, was also where two sets of parents would meet and draw up a formal marriage contract. So the contract was signed and the man and woman were legally pledged to each other. And the betrothal period lasted about a year, and the purpose of it was twofold. One was to test the fidelity of both the young man and the young woman to each other. Also, the purpose of the betrothal was marriages, marriage ceremonies were a big deal. They were a time of feasting. They were a time of celebration that often lasted multiple days, and uh, and. Marriage was considered official even during the betrothal period, and yet they did not live with one another or have sexual relationship with one another until after the ceremony when that marriage was consummated. So that's a little bit to help you understand when the text says that Mary was betrothed or Joseph was betrothed to Mary and they were to be wed they are already seen in the legal system as being legally married. And yet the marriage is not sealed, signed, and delivered. According to Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 21, or 20 through 21, we find that in the law that if a woman was found to be pregnant during the betrothal, that this could only mean that she had been unfaithful to her husband, in which cause the law commanded that she be stoned to death. So this is serious. So you can now begin to feel the tension that Joseph feels. This is not this happy story where, where Joseph is 
at the manger scene and he's like excited. This story is filled with tension. And this is really important because in our seasons of waiting, we feel that tension too. And I want you to hear me say this. God understands it and he has a word for us in the midst of our tension. The tension really ratchets up when Mary shows up and she tells Joseph that she's pregnant. And he's like, excuse me? And she says, oh, don't worry. It's from the Holy Spirit. Now, if you men were Joseph, what are you thinking? Yeah, right. You're also thinking, it's over. It's over, and potentially, Mary, this person that I love, who I have been promised to, her life is over. There's tension. There's tension in this story because he is left with the decision what to do. Many of us, if we found ourselves in this situation as men, we would be like, hard pass. No thank you. But when we think about the fact that her life is on the line, it leaves us in a situation where we know that the decisions that we make have life and death implications. You see, what Joseph thought was going to be a season of waiting to consummate a marriage has now turned into a different season altogether. Have you ever been there? You've been in a season waiting for something only to find out you were waiting for the wrong thing. I love the story of Joseph because all of us, whether you are in that season right now or not, will find ourselves in a place that's just like that, where we're waiting for one thing only to find out that there's something else on the other end. You see, Mary turns up pregnant. Joseph knows one thing for sure. He's not the father. He knows that. He's been faithful. So the question is, what words describe a man in a time like this? Maybe it's anger, maybe it's confusion, maybe it's frustration or embarrassment, maybe it's shame or rage or disappointment, or maybe it's all of those things combined. Have you ever felt like that? You felt embarrassed, you felt ashamed, you felt discouraged, you felt frustrated, you felt anger. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. You're a teenager in love and suddenly your girlfriend turns up pregnant and you know it's not your fault. Joseph is in a dilemma. He loves Mary, but he is a just man. In other words, he is a faithful Jewish man. He's observant under the law and has the right to divorce Mary for his, her unfaithfulness. In fact, the law also forbade him from marrying her. So he's in a difficult situation here. Verse 19, we feel this tension. It says, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So under the law, he has two options. He can divorce her publicly, and the way that that divorce would go down is there would be a judge who sat at the city gate. 
And the city gate was the entrance where people would come in and out of the city. There's a lot of commerce. There's a lot of trade that would take place in that area. And there would always be a judge who would be there to sort out matters between people and individuals. And so this public divorce would be to go to the city square in our time. It would be like to go to the very center of the walking mall yesterday during the craft fair and be like, it's over. So he has that option, or he has the option to do it privately, which had to be witnessed by two individuals, and often those two individuals would then take it public, and then that person would be stoned. So we see very clearly here that that Joseph has some difficult choices, and he's a just man. In other words, he follows the law, but he's also a loving person, and he's decided to do this privately so that Mary is not brought to public shame. Talk about having a lot on your mind. Some of you got a lot on your mind right now. You got a lot on your mind during this Christmas season. Think about Joseph. He has a lot on his mind. And just when he is contemplating and deciding, he falls asleep and he has a dream and the angel of the Lord shows up to help him. I know some of you, in your season of waiting, you wish that God would do the same thing. Just show up and tell you. And I want to tell you this morning, he is fully capable of doing whatever is necessary for you to hear his voice. He says to her, the angel says to him, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. I love this because it's a relational answer. He starts not with a theological conclusion. He starts with a relational conclusion. He says, hey, don't be afraid. It's interesting to me that over and over in the Bible, when the angel of the Lord shows up, that the very first thing that he says is, don't be afraid. Why? Because if you saw an angel, I guarantee you, you'd be afraid. Number one. Number two, because we are fearful people. And often we are fearful because we're not quite sure, first and foremost, how it's going to work out relationally. And so God shows up and his voice declares to him first and foremost, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. The second answer in the verse 20 through 23, he says the baby is from God. In other words, he gives them a rational, truth-based answer. So he starts with a relational answer. Hey, don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. Then he goes to the rational, truth-based answer that says, hey, Mary was telling you the truth. The baby is from God. In other words, she's not lying to you. She's not trying to skirt around the truth. The truth is, is that the baby is from God. And this would have confirmed that Mary was telling the truth. He's a just man. Remember, he's a religiously devout Jewish young man who would have understood from the history of Israel that when the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to you, you can trust what he says is true because he would have understood way back then what we said this morning that these words matter and that the word from God is true and trustworthy and so you can take it to the bank and believe it. So he gives them a relational answer. Don't be afraid to take Mary to be your wife. The baby is from God. It's a rational, truth-based answer. And then he gives them a responsibility because that's what we as men need. 
We were created to cultivate and care. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We were given the responsibility to cultivate and subdue the earth. And so God gives Joseph a responsibility. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. In that moment when he feels emasculated and having no purpose and no responsibility, the angel of the Lord gives it right back to him and he says, you're going to call him Jesus. And it's a beautiful phrase because he says, the reason is because he's going to save his people from their sins. So he gives them a responsibility And then the text tells us in verse 23, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. In other words, he doesn't just give him a relational answer and a rational truth-based answer, or he doesn't just give him a responsibility, but he gives him a prophetic promise answer. In other words, remember, remember, I've already said I was going to do this. I'm just fulfilling my promise. And the question is, what does Joseph do? He does exactly what God told him to do. He takes Mary to be his wife, in spite of public ridicule and public shame. He takes Mary to be his wife. Instead of choosing to put her away privately and more than likely it going public and she losing her life, instead of putting her away publicly in the public square in that moment her losing her life, he chooses the hardest thing, which is obedience to God. In our seasons of waiting, sometimes the hardest thing for us to do is to just obey God. And Joseph does exactly what God tells him to do, which is to name him Jesus, and to take Mary to be his wife. But the second thing that Joseph does here is also he does not take advantage of the situation. He doesn't take advantage of the situation. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you can read a little bit between the lines because I know we got little ones here, but he does not consummate his marriage with Mary until after the baby is born. And that's significant because If he would have taken advantage of the situation by saying, well, she's already pregnant, then the promises of God and the prophecy of God would have not been fulfilled because Mary would have not been a virgin. So Joseph's obedience has significance because he follows through with the command of God and he doesn't take advantage of the situation. This isn't even in my notes, but some of you need to hear this this morning. You're in a season of waiting, and you're taking advantage of the situation. You're saying, well, God would understand. God would understand how I could make a decision like that because, you know, I've been waiting for a long time. And God wants to show us through the person of Joseph how clearly it is for us to hear the voice of God and obey what he says in spite of how difficult it is. Joseph shows us what it looks like to live the life of faith. We're sitting here this morning looking at this text, and if you're like me while I was studying it, you're like, wow, that's amazing. That the angel of the Lord would come and visit Joseph and speak to him, that he would listen to the voice of the Lord and he would obey it, but what does that have to do with me? 
How does this help me in my season of waiting? How does Joseph and his response to this text point me to Jesus? And what does this, have, this text have to do with me? Well, I want you to know that Matthew is doing so much more than just giving us a glimpse into a Jerry Springer or Maury Povich moment where the angel of the Lord comes and says, Joseph, guess what? You're not the father. There's more to the story than just that. There's a word from God for all of us, and it's this. Our big idea for today is this. I spent a lot of time setting the groundwork to give you two really quick points, and it's this. The history of God and the mission of God help us to live by faith in seasons of waiting. The first thing is the history of God helps us to live by faith in seasons of waiting. Verse 1 through 17 is is the history of God. The genealogy, none of us gets up in the morning and says, you know where I'd like to spend my quiet time is in the genealogy. Some of you still read the King James and you got all the begats, right? And you're like, I don't even know what that means. It means they had a baby, okay? But before we meet Joseph in the story or Mary, Matthew gives us a genealogy. And it's important to the Jews because it gave legitimacy and identity to who they were as people who felt as though they had no significance and yet over and over in the scriptures were given the genealogies to remind the people of God that God is at work. Let's say that together. God is at work. The genealogy breaks down for us the message of Jesus and what he has been doing from the beginning, from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, that he fulfills his promises. We don't have time to read all the text, but there are three sets of 14 in Matthew's gospel. The first group of 14 speak of Jesus being of the son of Abraham. This is significant because if you look at it, there there are a few characters that are missing and it's not for the purpose of sanitizing the genealogy of Jesus because we'll see very quickly that there are characters in Jesus' genealogy here in Matthew that are pretty crazy, that that have some checkered pasts. And yet the first group of 14 speak of Jesus being of the son of Abraham. In Hebrews eleven eight, we are reminded that he was a man of faith who looked forward to the promise being made to him by God, that all the nations, that all the nations were fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And so Christ Jesus, we see Abraham's faith finds its fulfillment. So those first 14 generations that are listed there in Matthew's gospel point to the significance that God kept his promise with Abraham. This is really important, that God is a promise-keeping God. The second group of 14 speak of Jesus being the son of David, who was held to be Israel's greatest king. In fact, In the list which Matthew gives us, David is the only one with the prefix king. In this group, Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus is from the line of David. In Jesus Christ, the promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, God makes true on his promise at Christmas. In other words, we can trust that even when we don't feel that God's working, That he is a promise-keeping God. 
So we see this in the person of Abraham and those 14 generations. We see it in the 14 generations in the line of David. And this should blow your mind because in, we've been studying the book of Daniel and we come into this. And last week we looked at how Israel waits and it's in that same exile. But the last 14 show us that Jesus is the son of exile. So verse 12 through 17, we realize that Jesus is descended from those who were exiled from their homes and taken off into another country, Babylon and Egypt. For those reading this genealogy for the first time, bitter memories come into mind. But now they're associated with beautiful memories. Understanding that God was at work even in a bitter and horrible season and difficult time. In other words, Jesus is descended from those who knew suffering and the pain of being dispossessed. And he would know this in his own life. You see, God is at work in history. God is at work in history, including your history. In your seasons of waiting, you can trust that if God is willing to work out all things together for good, like Romans 8, 28 says, in the life of Abraham, and he's willing to do that in the life of David, of all people, who broke all of the commandments, and is considered a man after God's own heart, how much more will God work in your life in the history? All of this shows us that we need to be reminded in our seasons of difficulty, in our seasons of feeling messed up, that God is at work because there are people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba in the line of God. That means you might be here today and you say, I am too unsavable. There is no way that God would fix my life. You don't know where I've been. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the mistakes that I've made that have led me to the place where I live. You need to hear this morning that God works through history. He works through your history to show you that he can take even the most jacked up situations like David and the story of Tamar and Rahab and Bathsheba, and all of those situations, and work them together for good. If God can can fulfill all of this through the twists and turns of the Old Testament, how much more will He show up in your history and show you His grace? See, all of history points to the significance is found in Jesus. God is at work even when we can't see it. He is orchestrating it all. So this should build faith in you that God is working through history. He's working through history, but secondly, the mission of God. The mission of God helps us to live by faith in seasons of waiting. You see, Jesus came to meet our greatest need. The text tells us, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. You see, Joseph was invited into a bigger story than just simply his jacked-up relationship situation with Mary. God tells him that something greater is at at stake here, and it's the salvation of the world. Did you know this, that if you're a follower of Jesus, that he has invited you into the same mission? 
that if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, he has invited you to share that mission with others, that Jesus came to save people from sin. He's invited you into this mission just like he invited Joseph into the mission of giving Jesus his name, the name that would be above every name. Because Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Just as Jesus' lineage was supernatural, so too was the purpose of his birth. The purpose of his birth is that he would save people from their sins. This is the mission of God. I want to be so clear with you this morning, Mosaic. The mission of God isn't just that we would feed people. The mission of God isn't that we would just come here and have a nice service and sing. It's nice. The building has become nice. Can we put our hands together for that? It's become nice, right? The mission of God isn't that we would have lights and TVs and live streams. The mission of God is that he would come and save people from their sins. And he has put us on that mission to share that good news. That is the mission of God. He's come to save people from sin. The angel tells Joseph to call the baby Jesus because he would save his people from our sins. You see, our greatest need is that a supernatural intervention would take place to once and for all deal with our sin. And a supernatural intervention did take place. The Holy Spirit caused a baby to be conceived in a virgin. That actually happened. That's a historical event. Mary is not just a venerated character in the Catholic Church that we look up to and say she may or may not have existed. She actually existed. Jesus was actually born, and he has actually come to save you and me from our sins. This is the mission of God. See, here's the deal. The mistake and sin of Israel could not stop the mission of God. Joseph's concern and broken heart could not stop the mission of God. Your season of waiting cannot stop the mission of God. That was a great place to say amen. Your season, no matter how difficult it is, cannot stop the mission of God. It cannot. This is good news because in spite of how hard the season of waiting is for you, God's mission will come to pass. He will save people from their sins. And so if you're here today and you know Jesus, there's some encouragement here. Because if you're in a difficult season of waiting, look back and see how much God has moved. He is still the same God who can move in your life right now. He's the same God who can heal your marriage that's in a wreck right now. He's the same God who can provide a job and he can provide a place to live, who has provided those things in the past. Maybe he's not ever done those things in your life, but that has not stopped him from being God. He can show up right now in your life and rescue, because that's who he is. So as a believer, look to the history of God in your seasons of waiting and allow that to build faith. If God is willing to orchestrate these generations and fulfill the promise to Abraham and fulfill the promise to David, he's going to fulfill his promises to you. Look to history and allow it to build your faith. 
But don't just stop there. Realize that if you're a believer, this good news is a good news to be shared. He's inviting you to be on mission. Not just simply to invite people to church. Please do that. We'd love to see every seat filled. We're excited about what God is doing here at Mosaic and growing this church. Physically and financially and numerically. We're thankful for all of that. But at the end of the day, all of that is about the mission of God. That Jesus came to save sinners. It's my goal next year that every single one of you would have one person. You'd have one person that you would see come to faith in your life. We're going to provide really tangible opportunities for you to put their name up on a wall and pray for them. You say, what if they show up and see their name? Wouldn't that be cool? It'd be a cool opportunity to share the message of Jesus with them. I put your name up there because I cared about you. So if you're a believer this morning, trust and know that God is at work through your history and he's inviting you to be on mission. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I want you to hear this. Look at all the links that God would go to. Look at all the links he would go to. That he would go through all of these jacked up generations over and over from the line of Abraham all the way through the line of David, all the way through the exile to make sure that Jesus would be born of a virgin miraculously so that he could come and save you from your sins. Jesus has come to save you from your sins. And I want you to hear me say this. If you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not a follower of Jesus, that God has a mission. And his mission isn't simply that you would have a good life. His mission isn't that you would just simply have a great life. His mission is that you would be saved from your sins and that you would have an eternal relationship with God. That is why Jesus has come. That is the meaning of Christmas. The meaning of Christmas isn't a season of waiting to rip open gifts. We do do that. But it's about Jesus who has come to save you from your sins. God is so committed to his mission. If you look at the end of this passage in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive... And bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is a promise, and we don't have time to unpack this, but if you go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 7, there was a promise made to a king named King Ahaz. King Ahaz is in a tight spot, and there are two other kings that are plotting to kill him and overthrow him, and God gives him a promise that that will not happen. And in the promise of that not happening to him, God makes a promise to all people. And that is that Jesus would be born. And this moment right here in Matthew, this is so significant. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 is the fulfillment of a promise made hundreds of years ago in Isaiah chapter 7. In other words, God always fulfills his promises. History shows us that and his mission shows us that. So we can trust him. Let's pray.